Well, I hope you're open to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. And uh, since I know that there's always people that weren't here for the, especially the last couple of sermons, but last week, let me just give you a little bit of a review through a verse. Uh, I've called the message the power of the message of the cross. And I'm hoping that we'll really, <clears throat> excuse me, understand what that actually means as we uh, go through this. Uh, <clears throat> So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, it reads this way. For Christ, this is the Apostle Paul's writing from uh, in the first chapter we studied it last week. For Christ, that's Jesus, did not send me, the, Paul, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And now here's the important part. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, Paul had taught the Corinthians for a year and a half, and, uh, and then he had gone on. And something was happening in the church. There was a disunity in the church. It hadn't come to crisis proportions yet, but it was heading in that way. And it was because there were some people in the church, even Christians, who were falling for worldly wisdom rather than understanding biblical wisdom. And there's a huge difference between worldly wisdom and uh, biblical wisdom. But the problem is that worldly wisdom uh, sounds good often, doesn't it? I mean, we love worldly wisdom. We read books on how to be successful and powerful, uh, on how to stop aging, and, on, and they haven't worked yet, but on, on making money without hardly working at all. It, it fits our fallen human uh, nature to be in control of ourselves and everything around us. So if you have a formula or seven easy steps to work at home and make a million, we'll purchase your books and work your system. But Paul had a different view of life, and he was able to fight some strong forces within the Corinthian church who had fallen for humanistic ideas about how to live life. Paul was determined to demonstrate godly wisdom, which tells the truth by revealing spiritual solutions to life's dilemmas. So Paul is now going to remind the Corinthians and us that he didn't arrive in Corinth with a swagger and some clever speech or a big, bright smile. In fact, he reminds them that he came in humility as a visibly broken man who had been changed by the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, proving God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. Paul's so-called weak preaching was more effective than the clever sophistry some in Corinth had fallen for. So let's look at verse 1, and we'll see what he was going to say. So in verse 1, Paul writes, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, and so it was with me, I came to you, 
So he's going backwards here in their minds, at least. He was there. He met Aquila and Priscilla when he came into Corinth, who were tent makers. He was also a tent maker. He joined them so he'd support himself. And, uh, and he had stayed there for a year and a half. And he says, so it was with me, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, when I came to you, you'll remember, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. The Message Bible is more like a paraphrase, but sometimes it gets things just right. And in chapter 4 of, uh, of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul uh, says these words uh, as the Message Bible has it, talking about himself and the other Bible teachers. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes. And we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. That was the attitude of Paul. Paul was making it clear he was not after their money or their praise. He was not working his way up some ecclesiastical ladder. He was not looking for self-congratulation. He was desiring to make Jesus famous, not himself. Remember now, again, the problem was wisdom. The word is sophistry. It's a Greek kind of wisdom. Some in Corinth had fallen for cleverly presented so-called superior conclusions better than what the Apostle Paul had preached. So Paul was making it clear that the message was simply the weakness of the cross, in a word, crucifixion. We just saw that when we took a look at what it meant for, uh, for Jesus to be crucified. The, the wine and the, the bread were a picture of the body and the blood of Jesus. He had to die for our sins. That's what Christianity is all about. And so in verse 2 here, look at it in your Bibles, for I resolved, Paul says, to know nothing while I was with you for that year and a half, except Jesus Christ, that means he's the Messiah, and him crucified. So the cross and crucifixion. It's almost impossible for us, well, actually, it is impossible for us, I believe, to experience the disdain an audience of that day would feel if someone in in that day, talked about crucifixion publicly. Crucifixion was considered so gross by every level of society uh, that no one would talk about it publicly. So for Paul to come proclaiming that a Jewish man, Jewish, the Jews didn't, they wouldn't crucify other Jews. So for Paul to come proclaiming that a Jewish man who had been crucified, was indeed the Messiah from heaven, would seem ludicrous. I mean, just the, think, think about this. This is so gross in thinking. They couldn't even imagine such a thing. The Messiah was killed on a cross? That just can't happen. But you know, it's one of the great proofs of the reality of the message of the cross. Because just the fact that the message spread so quickly and was so powerful in changing lives is evidence enough 
of the truthfulness of this amazing idea that a Jewish man named Jesus, who said he was God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so if we put verse 2 and 3 together, we'll do it again. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in verse 3, you could write the word and if it doesn't have it there in your translation. And I came to you, I, Paul, the apostle, came to you in weakness and fear with trembling. Well, what's that all about? With trembling? I mean, physically, Paul was not a great specimen to observe. He had been mistreated, persecuted, beaten, whipped, and stoned with the scars to prove it. He may have been concerned that there would be more violent persecution because of his message, but the fear and trembling he was experiencing was due to his desire to preach the message of the cross with with spiritual power. He wasn't dripping with self-confidence, yet he was willing to make the message of salvation clear and trust God to change the lives of the people. I mean, I, I find it impossible to imagine that any Bible teacher uh, could be just like excited about preaching the Bible and showing off all his abilities to speak and all of this kind of thing. I have to tell you, when I come here on Sunday mornings, some people, I've said this to people, that say, you're kidding. I, I'm incredibly nervous. Nervous? Why are you nervous? You worried that the people won't like your sermon? Well, that's a given, but besides that, <laughs> uh, no, that's not it. I'm, I'm worried that it'll be too much of me and not enough of God. That's why he was trembling, because this is life and death. So he, he didn't come like the sophists like those who have a following because of their rhetoric. He just explained the gospel in a straightforward way from the Scripture. And he says it in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. I mean, he had a tremendous vocabulary. He was a brilliant man, taught by Gamaliel himself, one of the great teachers of the day. And yet he's coming and he's saying, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Now, some in Corinth had a message that came with clever argument. Paul had a message that came with clear teaching from the Bible. While others had a message that impressed people, Paul's message changed people. So back to verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit's power, so that, he's talking to the Corinthians, the Christians there, to us today, so that your faith, our faith, might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, in reading the book of Acts, you see it was common in that day for there to be miracles, signs, and wonders when the gospel was preached. But the real demonstration of power is the life change of those who accept the message. That is clearly what Paul is suggesting here. I mean, think about it. Jews who all their lives worked at keeping the law. They never missed a service at the synagogue. They memorized uh, the Scripture. 
Uh, they, they did everything they could to obey the Ten Commandments and the hundreds of other commandments that were made up around the Ten Commandments. Uh, they were extremely religious. But they were now turning from their rules-based religion to follow Jesus. Or in the Greek culture, whose philosophy would deny there was even one God above all. They believed in a whole bunch of gods. Many now willing to die for their faith in Jesus as the crucified Messiah, the only God, the Savior of everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Uh, there's a, a passage in chapter uh, 6 of 1 Corinthians. Let me just read it because it shows us what had happened in the church. So Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. It's all on the screen. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, wrongdoers will not go to heaven. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, those who people who have idols and false gods, nor adulterers, that was men running around on their wives in that culture, didn't, couldn't work the other way in that culture. Uh, uh, so, or men who have sex with men, homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. They're just not going to go to heaven. And then these next eight words. And that is what some of you were. Wow, the power of the gospel. Because in the Corinthian church, there were people who were sexually immoral, who were idolaters and adulterers and, and thieves and greedy and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, men who, as it says here, have sex with, with men and all of that. There were those kind of people, and now they have become saved. They become Christians. And it says so. It says, but you were washed. Think of taking a shower. <laughs> you were sanctified. You were justified. We've talked about these words a lot. Justified, that means you're just as if you had never sinned, never done any of those things, even though you did those things. Now when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you as any of those descriptions. He looks at you as if you were Jesus. He looks at the righteousness of Jesus. And then you're being sanctified. God, the Holy Spirit, is helping you to grow and to grow away from all those things that controlled your lives before. And it's all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It wasn't the sophistry that did it. It was the Spirit of God who did it. I mean, what evidence of the power manifested through simple, straightforward Bible teaching? Paul is saying that the act of preaching is not the goal. Conversion and life change, that is the goal. Now, let's, let's go back again to verse uh, 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, uh, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, verse 5, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, sophistry, but on God's power. Think about it this way. If someone could be persuaded to follow Jesus by human reasoning alone and not the power of God's Spirit, then they could also be persuaded to give up their faith because of human reasoning or worldly wisdom. 
If all we do is preach well-crafted and clever sermons with philosophical fireworks or feel-good advice, but people's lives aren't changed, then why are we doing this at all? It's a waste of time. Now, Paul certainly was a good Bible teacher, but he did not use the verbal gymnastics of the Greek's office to convince his audience. Instead, he relied on the power of presenting the message of the cross and allowing God's Spirit to convict of sin and convert the hearers. Verse 4 also contains the first direct reference to the Holy Spirit in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. For Paul, the Spirit's power was the power to change lives so those converted could live in the surrounding godless society with victory. For Paul, the Spirit was everything. Without the Holy Spirit's presence and power and indwelling, nothing eternal happens. So for the rest of the chapter, Paul contrasts the spiritual person with the non-spiritual person. Now, he's not suggesting that those in the church that he's writing to were not believers, but he was suggesting they were acting more like non-believers than believers. His desire was for them to realize who they are in Christ and act like it. Verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom. So you see what's happening here. He's kind of changing uh, what he's saying in a little bit to get their attention. We do, however. It's not that we don't have any wisdom. We speak a message of wisdom. We apostles, we Bible teachers. And we speak a message of wisdom among the mature. The word mature in some Bibles is perfect. That's what it says. It just means those who are Christians and uh, they're for sure believers in Jesus Christ and they need to grow more. So we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Those are truly Christians. But not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I mean, I detect some sarcasm here. The rulers of this age are coming to nothing. He is saying that his message includes wisdom that will last, not the wisdom they're enamored with that will die off with those who speak it. That's the rulers of this age. So some Christians in Corinth were pursuing temporal wisdom about spiritual things, while Paul is offering eternal wisdom. This is really for today, for our day. Probably some of your minds are already thinking about some of those uh, leaders. So he wrote near the end of his life to his uh, protege, Timothy. I call him Pastor Timothy. He discipled Timothy. He was a pastor in Ephesus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he wrote these words. And so, Timothy, I solemnly urge you before God and before Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, that's the second coming, preach the word of God. Be persistent, in other words. Don't give up. Whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to right teaching they'll follow their own desires 
and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear. Now, if you've been around for a while or have an older Bible translation, uh, you know this is where it says that they'll be looking for teachers who will tickle their ears. I think that's a good picture. Will tickle their ears. Oh, I really like that. Oh, I hope, yeah, yeah, how to be successful and all of this kind of stuff. I'm going to make a million. Now, verse 7, Paul says rather strongly, I think, no, we declare God's wisdom. Now, this is a really seminal verse. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now, the word mystery can put you off track here if you don't understand it. Mystery in the New Testament is not like an Agatha Christie mystery or a Grisham mystery. I love to read Grisham mysteries and try to figure out the end before I get to it. That's not what the word mystery here means. Mystery here is always something that has been revealed that used to be a mystery. Old Testament passages, things that happened in the past. So the, the mystery here is the revealing of what, uh, what God was working out through the Old Testament. So the New Testament brings light and color to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament just is exciting to read now because we now know the mystery, which is the cross. That's the mystery. And it's been hidden uh, even before time began. So this is part of a plan where we are right now in our lives individually, corporately, around the world, where the world is now, was already planned by God. He knew everything that was going to happen. He's God. He can't learn. He can't look ahead to see what's going to happen. He's already passed ahead. And so uh, he, this is a mystery that has now been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit when we become Christians. But it's still hidden to those who don't have the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. I would just say a little bit, being a little bit only contemporary. None of the rulers of this age do understand it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is the most important point. All the great wisdom of the world only led the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman government to crucify the Savior of the world. And why did they crucify Jesus? Well, they crucified him because they thought he was a messianic pretender. The Jewish religious leaders were insulted by his teaching, and so they wanted to get rid of him. The Romans were coerced by the Jewish leadership who caused the people to rise up and threaten the Roman leadership. So the Romans got rid of that problem by crucifying Jesus, even though there was no proof that he did anything to deserve such a terrible punishment. So the wisdom of the world killed Jesus, who was the wisdom of God on a hill called Golgotha on a criminal's cross. By nailing Jesus to the cross, they rejected the wisdom of God that is the only hope for entering heaven in eternity. I mean, that's why communion is so important. We must never forget the cost of our free salvation. And we all should be in a mood, in a sense, after what we've already done this morning of realizing uh, that it was the cross 
It was on the cross that Jesus died for us. That was the salvation that we needed. His rising from the dead was God's signature saying, okay, now you're saved if you know Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on a little deeper here in verse 9, and he says, however, as it is written, what he's going to do now is he's going to turn to the Bible, and he's going to be quoting Isaiah chapter 64. And I always like to remind us that the people of that day, they knew what, was, what Isaiah had to say. Now, he, he didn't say Isaiah chapter 64, verse such and such. He didn't have to. He just quoted Isaiah, and all of his listeners in that Corinthian church would know that he's quoting Isaiah. So he says, as it is written in Isaiah, for us, it's Isaiah chapter 64, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Now, now stop there just a minute. The point is that the human mind cannot even conceive of God's ways for, verse 10, for these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. You know, when I, when I was uh, in my atheistic arguing days, I used to read the Bible, define stories. I'd be reading books against the Bible. And then I'd read the, the Bible stories, and I'd use the stories against the Bible, like the one that I used the most, and I've mentioned it often, was when Jesus cursed the fig tree. I'd read it in a book uh, by Bertram Russell, and, uh, and so I had read carefully what Russell wrote, and then I would say to people, I'd read the story. I said, now, can you believe that? Anybody that would stand in front of a fig tree and curse it is obviously unstable, mentally ill, crazy, and then I get saved. And I started reading the Bible, and every time I'd start to read it, I'd start to cry. I don't cry. I do judo. I fight. <laughs> you know, I tried to read through 1 John, and I couldn't do it. I tried to read it to Valerie, and I started to cry. She was kind of freaked out. She wasn't a Christian yet. And what's wrong with this guy? Well, what's wrong with me is that the Spirit of God had changed me, and now I understand the things of God I didn't understand before. And that's what verse 10 is all about, the things God has revealed by his Spirit. And, and that is why we teach through the Bible here and, and why we all need to be involved in much Bible study. It's impossible. This is an absolute statement that I have no fear of being wrong about. It's impossible to grow as a Christian without reading the Bible. Can't do it. The Bible contains the greatest body of knowledge available anywhere in the world. Only a fool would avoid it. Imagine not knowing what the best-selling book in all of history says, or imagine missing out on the amazing hope written in its pages. It is only in the Bible that real hope is found. It is only in the Bible where we learn God's principles of life for mankind's flourishing. It is in the Bible that we are led to a life of contentment and joy in all circumstances. The world has no competing knowledge. The Bible is God's love letter to the world. There is no comparable book, religious or otherwise, 
to the Bible, to God's Word. So read it, study it, memorize parts of it, and enjoy the Bible. Now, here is why we can understand the Bible and its message. Verse 11. This is really interesting. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit, that word ultimately means the soul, our own soul within them. Who knows a person's thoughts except yourself? You only know your own thoughts. Actually, what follows is a Greek philosophic principle, so let's learn it. Like is known only by like. Now, just think about that for a minute. It's important. Like is known only by like. Now, here's what it means. You cannot know what I am thinking unless I choose to reveal it to you with words. Now, if you've done any counseling at all or given people a lot of advice, you've had the experience. I've sat in my office and had uh, couples uh, say in front of me, uh, coming for help, and they're arguing, and, and things are going on, and back and forth, and finally I stop, and I look at, well, the husband, it's usually his fault, I look at the husband and say, I know what you're thinking. And he'll look, and you're thinking such and such and such and such. And I've had people say, how did you know that? Well, the, the real, the, the, well, the first answer is, hey, I've been around a while. <clears throat> the real answer is, I, I didn't, I just guess him. Really, I don't, I, that's, if we just have to be honest, I really don't know. Now, but we say that all the time. And I've had people say to me, I know what you're thinking. And they're right a lot of the time, but they don't really know. So here it says in verse 11, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Do you see that? Like is known only by like, and we're not God. Now, there's, there's careful argument here. No one can know what God thinks except God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, for any human being to know what God is thinking, he or she would have to have the Spirit of God. Or to put it into our terms, only a believer in Jesus can know the thoughts of God. And verse 12 says, what we have received when we become a Christian is not the Spirit, small s, of the world, but the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us, freely given us. That's why someone could come and take communion and eh, some wine and a bunch of symbolism, or someone could take communion and almost be in tears because we realize, wow, this is why I'm saved. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, uh, I refer to it often. Uh, Paul writes, the Spirit of God lives in you, Christian, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So don't ever let anybody tell you that, well, you got saved, now you need to receive the Spirit. No, you might need to have a better commitment, but uh, no, when you get saved, you receive the Spirit. So if you don't have the Spirit in you, uh, you couldn't understand the things of God. So it's rather foolish to be captivated by the world's rhetoric, the sophistry of the world, when we can know the thoughts of God. We must stop thinking like the world. So verse 13 reads, This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom. Paul is talking about himself and the other teachers. 
This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. We again see the priority of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life and his teaching. That's why he was trembling. He wanted to make sure that the words that he was using represented God's words and were accurate to God's words. Paul is saying that the Spirit is the one who gives him the appropriate words to explain spiritual things, not the words the world uses to understand the meaning of life, but the words God gives us to understand the cross, to understand salvation. And that's why I said it in the first part of the sermon, but I can't imagine why any pastor, no matter how good he is, I love Chuck Swindoll, and I've heard him say often that he's come to the pulpit sometime trembling like the Apostle Paul. Even though he's brilliant and he's been around for decades and decades and had all kinds of fruit, he still comes knowing that if he's not communicating what God says accurately, he's in a lot of trouble. And I feel that myself all of the time. Now, last week, we talked about verse 14. So here it is again. The person without the Spirit, so that's a non-believer, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and what's the next word? Cannot. Cannot. Understand them, because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Someone who does not have the Spirit of God is unable to understand the truth about eternal spiritual Realities. On the other hand, verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. What that's saying is that when we have the Spirit of God, we understand what's going on in the world. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Or we could say that such a person, that is a spirit-filled Christian, no longer judges things by mere human understanding. And I put it in these words. I would say that Christians have a better grip on the reason for evil than any non-Christian. I especially see this when there's a tragedy or a shooting, a tornado or a hurricane or war. And you'll see the pundits, uh, as you're watching, say, television, you'll see the pundits uh, who are not Christians trying to come to grips with it. At 9-11, I saw this a lot, coming up with their reasons. Their, uh, they were like sophists. They were, well, it's this, and, and they're explaining all kinds of things, and I'm listening, thinking, but you just don't know, do you? You don't understand the sovereignty of God. You don't understand where God is working in all this. You don't understand the mind of the Lord. And that's the last verse that we're looking at, verse 16. It says, for who has known the mind of the Lord to instruct him? That's what they're sort of trying to do. I've seen people in these situations, well, I think if there's a God, just blah, and they go on and on, and it's just blah, blah, blah. You know, but who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Actually, uh, the Isaiah chapter 40, 13 reads this way in the New Living Translation. 
Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? In other words, uh, who can give God advice? <laughs> and we, I, I try to do it occasionally. God, I'd be a lot better if you did this or did that or did this, especially in Kevin's life here. He really needs... <laughs> I mean, we tend to do that. But then we have the last just few words, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Uh, this is really interesting. I was actually studying the passage this morning early, and I was reading the New Living Translation, and I just liked the way it was put. But we understand these things, the things of God, because we have the mind of Christ. Because we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is the understanding of God's ways because God's Spirit is within us. So we are able to understand the Bible. The Bible contains God's mind, His Word and instruction that changes lives and is eternal. The Word of God is only understood by the revelation of the Spirit of God in us. That is why non-Christians can read the Bible and get nothing out of it. But when someone becomes a Christian, everything changes. Everything changes. Harry Arnside, he was a Canadian preacher who died about four years after I was born. Uh, you can buy any of his uh, sermon books. Or, well, they're, they're just tremendous. He wrote these words to wake up those who have never made that decision to ask Jesus to change their lives. Just listen carefully if you can imagine him preaching this. What is your motive in life? Are you seeking your own desires? Or are you seeking to please the Lord, Jesus Christ? As every saved person looks back to the old life, he or she can say, I live for myself, for myself alone, for myself and none beside just as if Jesus had never lived and as if he had never died. You know, that's the way we all lived, no matter how religious we were or non-religious, that's how we all lived. And I just, I've been really uh, praying this morning about this. I mean, if this describes your present life, you must make a decision this morning. You must. You have no idea if you've got tomorrow. And also, if, if you're truly a Christian, but you're like some that were in Corinth where, yeah, you're really saved, but nobody would really know it. Oh, I'm not, you're not doing bad things. You don't curse and swear. You don't get drunk. You don't, and you give money. And, but if you're just sort of going along with the program and not really being all in with Jesus, change that. It's no way to live. And, and if you live a long life, you'll come to regret it. But even if you have lived a long life, and uh, you can forget the regret and just say to God, now I want to be all in. And he just wipes out all of that time that you don't need to regret. That's the great thing about the Christian life. We don't need to regret our past. We confess our past and repent of it, and God wipes it away completely, completely. So if you do make a decision,
for Jesus this morning, if you do. You'll discover that God will increasingly reveal his will to you as you grow in the knowledge of his word, the Bible. What could be better than that? And you'll know that you have eternal life, and you'll no longer be all about you. Life's not all about me. It's about God. And it's about others. And it's about living with joy now and in eternity forever. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're a sinner. Everybody is. I saw a little story. I'm going to risk it uh, here. I just was so taken by it this morning in one of Paul Tripp's books I was reading. And he tells about his nine-year-old, nine-month-old boy at the time, little boy. And he said he was walking everywhere and danger everywhere in the house. You all know what that's like to have have kids. And so he sits sits him down in front of a a light socket, you know, a plug-in socket. And he, he... Gives him a little lecture on you don't touch this, never, never, and all that. And he says in his writing, he says, I wasn't sure if he really understood me or not. But the next day, he says, I was sitting in a chair, and I saw him peeking around the corner at me. I noticed that. And then he sort of snuck in front of me, heading right for the light socket. And he just gets in front of it. And before he touches it, he turns and looks at me because he knew that his father would be upset with him if he touched the light socket. Well, you see, that's a, a, a wonderful picture that we can know our Father in heaven enough that we know what we shouldn't touch. <laughs> we know what life is really all about now. And we have an experience with a loving Father who cares more about us, who will discipline us fairly, who will encourage us constantly, and will always be there with us Jesus said, I'll be with you to the end of the age, but then forever. So if you're not a Christian this morning, please, I beg of you, do not leave here without praying and receiving Jesus. And then all you have to do is come and ask me. I'll give you a special Bible that you can take home and all of that. Uh, or you can phone, phone me or email me or whatever they put on the screen. And uh, I'd be glad to help you from there. So let's pray. Father, I just pray if there's anyone here... That but doesn't know you, hasn't had their eyes opened by your Holy Spirit, that you would just really help them right now to realize their need to convict them of their sin and that they would pray a prayer that just simply said, Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin and come into my life and change my life. I believe that you lived, that you died, that you're God, that you rose from the dead and that you died for me specifically. So thank you for saving me. And if you prayed anything like that, God sees your heart and he'll change your life and it'll make a huge difference. And if there are any among us who really are just going along with the program and not just making Jesus the Lord of their life, I pray that we would all do that, Father. All through our lives, we'll all have different times where we have to make that commitment over and over again. God never gets tired of hearing us making it over and over again. So I pray that many this morning would make that commitment. Dear Jesus, take my life and do with it whatever you want, but I want it to be something that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen.